Okay, we're uh, continuing together today our study and our confession of faith in uh, chapter 30, and we're dealing still with paragraphs 5 and 6, which deal with the nature of the elements of the Lord's Supper. And we saw last time that paragraph 5 sets forth the positive truth of what the elements are, that they are and remain symbols. Uh, of the body and blood of Christ, and they are and remain bread and wine. And then we saw in paragraph 6 the refutation of the false teaching regarding the nature of the elements of the Lord's Supper. And um, so I want to reread those paragraphs, and then we'll pick up where we left off last time. It says in, in paragraph thir- chapter 30 in paragraph 5 and 6, the outward elements in this ordinance duly set apart to the use ordained by Christ, have such a relation to him crucified as that truly, although in terms used figuratively, they are sometimes called by the names of the things they represent, to wit, the body and blood of Christ. Albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. The doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by consecration of a priest or by any other way, is repugnant not to Scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason. Overthrows the nature of the ordinance and has been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. So, um, last time we were talking about the reasons why when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, he was speaking metaphorically and not literally when he instituted the Lord's Supper and took up bread and took up wine and, and, and held out the bread and said, this is my body and, and held out the, the cup and said, this is my blood. Um, if you've had any training in, in English... Um, figures of speech at all, you've heard terms like simile and metaphor and parable and allegory and those kinds of things, right? Okay. Well, a simile is um, like our word similar. So when, when someone says, this is like that, that's a simile. Okay. And, um, so when someone says a donkey is like a horse, they're, they're making a simile, okay? And um, a parable is just an extended simile. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man who sowed good seed in his field, etc. okay? A metaphor, on the other hand, is, is more powerful. It's when you say something is not like something, you say something is something. So when you say of a person, man, that guy, he's a rock. That's a metaphor. You don't say he's like a rock. That would be less powerful. Okay. When you say he's a rock, what you mean is he's strong and solid, right? And so an allegory is just an extended metaphor. So um, why do we say, man, that guy's a rock? Do we mean he's literally a rock? You know, he's like lava or something. We don't mean that at all. 
we're, we're saying that to, to make a really powerful point and to conjure up in the mind of our listeners um, uh, an image and a message that really has an impact. And this is what Jesus is doing um, when he says, this is my body, this is my blood. He's saying these things represent my body or these things represent my blood. And um, so anyway, uh, to summarize uh, from last time then, we talked about the fact that the Roman Catholics teach in their doctrine of transubstantiation that when the priest says um, the ceremonial words that he uses, that he turns the bread into the literal body of Christ and he turns the wine into the literal blood of Christ. And they're actually eating and drinking, they say, the literal body and blood of Christ. And we began to give reasons why that was not the case. That's not what Jesus meant. And so we said that when he said, this is my body, what he meant is this represents my body. When he said, this is my blood, what he meant is this represents my blood. And we talked about the fact that language is used this way in the scripture all of the time. We talked about the fact that Jesus used many metaphors to describe himself when he said, I am the vine, I am the door. Uh, he didn't say, I'm like a vine or I am like a door. He said, I am the door. And so um, clearly those statements are not to be taken literally. And so this one shouldn't be either. And um, so we, we looked at, at a number of, of, of other arguments. If taken literally, he would be saying as he took up the body or the bread and wine, he would be saying to his disciples, I'm handling my own body and my own blood in front of you when he was sitting there in front of them. Um, the disciples would have never understood him to mean that he was handling his own body with his own hands. Um, we saw that after the elements were blessed and consecrated, they were still called bread and wine by the biblical authors. And um, that they didn't ever call them uh, the body and blood of Christ after they were consecrated. They still called them bread and wine. Um, we looked at the uh, fact that um, Jesus said regarding the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, and if we were to literalize that, then this chalice would be the covenant. And of course, that's silly to understand it in that fashion. The cup was used as a metaphor. Um, and then we saw that the Lord's Supper is always to be celebrated in remembrance of Christ. You don't remember someone who's present. You remember someone who's absent. And since uh, if the wafer and the wine actually become Christ, we would be observing Christ, not remembering him. Okay. And um, <clears throat> then finally, we closed last time with the seventh reason and that is if the wafer and the wine become the literal body and blood of Christ, to consume them would be an act of cannibalism. And we talked about the fact that the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, forbids the consumption of blood. It's the one dietary restriction that still exists under the New Covenant. And the reason why is because that's a dietary restriction that was imposed when? At the Noahic Covenant. Is the Noahic Covenant still in force? Yes, so that dietary restriction is still in force. 
It's the only one that was enunciated in that covenant. All the dietary restrictions that were enunciated under the old covenant are gone because the old covenant's gone. So anyway, we see the apostles reaffirming it in Acts chapter 15. All right, well, that brings us to new material then today. There's a couple of other reasons that we want to offer as to why transubstantiation could not possibly be the teaching of the Word of God. And, um, and our, our, the authors of our confession make particular note of this um, <clears throat> when they say that this, this uh, teaching is repugnant not to Scripture alone, but also to common sense and reason. In other words, <clears throat> to rebut this doctrine, you don't even need to use exegesis, just use common sense and reason. Now let's explore a couple of those arguments. If what the Catholics teach about this is true, then such teaching denies the reliability of our senses. Now, we have senses, taste, touch, sight, smell, in hearing, okay? And four of those senses are employed when we're interacting with the bread and the wine, okay? Namely, taste, touch, sight, and smell. We employ all those senses when we interact with the bread and the wine, okay? All of our senses, taste, touch, sight, smell, all tell us that these things are still bread and wine, not flesh and blood. I mean, I was Roman Catholic. I was raised Roman Catholic. And I took communion in Roman Catholic Church hundreds of times. And uh, every time it never tasted like or smelled like or looked like or felt like flesh and blood. It always felt like bread and wine. And so our senses are the only inlets we have for obtaining information as to external facts. I mean, how do you learn anything about the world around you? Through five portals, right? Okay, your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth, and your touch. And you don't get information any other way into you that is, exists outside of you. And so if we may not believe, if we may not believe the unanimous testimony of our senses telling us what is around us and outside of us, then there is an end to any ability to acquire knowledge that's reliable from our environment. Every miracle ever performed in the Bible was done so that it was able to be verified by the senses of any and every individual. And when a miracle was done, even the Pharisees who hated Jesus and wanted to uh, expose him as a fraud, even they could not deny miracles such as the resurrection of Lazarus or the healing of the man who lay at the beautiful gate in the temple in Acts chapter 3. And let's just look at a couple of passages, Acts chapter 4. Peter has healed this man who was lame from his birth. In Acts chapter 4, <clears throat> it says, 
In verse 13, now back in chapter 3, he healed the man that was born, that was born lame, right? Okay. Acts 4.14, Acts 4.13, And when they, that is the Pharisees, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now get this, And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. The evidence was too overwhelming. I mean, here's this guy. Everybody knew him. He'd been in the temple all his life, laying at the gate, begging for money. He was born lame. And now he's standing there in front of them walking. He never walked in his life. Now notice verse 15. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. Now get this, saying, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. So the point is, is that when a miracle was done, everybody saw the same thing, heard the same thing, felt the same thing, smelled the same thing, tasted the same thing, and it couldn't be denied. The human senses, in this case, in this particular man's sight, uh, made it clear that there was a miracle that was done that, and nobody could deny it. And that was the characteristic of every miracle that was ever done in the Bible. They could all be verified with the senses. All agreed that their senses told them the same thing, that something occurred that could not be denied. And no miracle ever contradicted the senses of the observer. On the contrary, he was forced by his senses to admit them. The same thing happened at the resurrection of Lazarus. You can read about it in John eleven forty seven, and then in chapter 12, verses 10 through 11. They couldn't deny that Lazarus rose from the grave, so they decided to put him and Jesus to death in order to squash the thing. Now, if our senses confirm miracles, what happens when we partake of the Lord's Supper in a Roman Catholic church? Well, no such confirmation occurs to our senses when this supposed miracle takes place. In fact, the opposite occurs. Our senses tell us when we eat the bread and drink the wine, that it's still bread and wine, and that no transubstantiation has occurred at all. It still tastes like bread, it feels like bread, it smells like bread, and it looks like bread. So guess what? It is bread. It isn't the body of Christ. Listen, if I cannot trust my sight, my taste, my smell, and my touch, telling me, that these are still bread and wine, then I also cannot trust my ears when the priest tells me that this is the body and blood of Christ. Surely I must have heard something else. Do you get it? Okay. If I can't trust my taste, touch, sight, and smell, and, and, and I have to believe that this is not bread, this is the body of Christ, then how can I trust my ears when the priest tells me it is the body of Christ? So either you trust your senses or you don't. And you trust them all or you trust none of them. 
And if you trust none of them, then that's the end of epistemology. You can't learn anything. So the fundamental law of the reliability of our senses cannot be denied. Because if the fundamental law of the reliability of our senses is denied, then man is incapable of knowing a miracle from a non-miracle or anything from anything. So to believe in transubstantiation, we have to disbelieve our senses. And this God requires of no man. See, that's what we call blind faith. Right? Blind, no eyes. <laughs> and we could call it tasteless faith. And we could call it smellless faith. And we could call it touchless faith. Because you, you can't employ any of those senses in believing that this is the body of Christ. So the point is, is Christianity never calls upon anybody to engage in blind faith. It always provides rational, verifiable, objective evidence for its claims. And proof that can be put to the test of the senses. And uh, so that's, that's another reason why um, transubstantiation can't possibly be true because such teaching denies the reliability of our senses. Um, the ninth reason why we can't embrace this teaching is because this teaching is contrary to the nature of the body of Christ. This teaching is contrary to the nature of the body of Christ. Now, Christ's body, like ours, is a physical body. It has specific location, limits, and dimensions. I mean, if, if I were to stand all of you up against the wall, you would have a specific height, and we could measure it. And it would be fixed. That's how tall you are. And you know what? You're in this room. You're not at home. And you can't be at home and in this room at the same time. Physical matter simply does not permit omnipresence. And so even after the resurrection, Jesus could only be with his body in one place at one time. And while he could appear and disappear at will, he could not be and never was in two places at once. And so after his resurrection, after his resurrection with his new resurrected body, he said in Matthew 26, 32 to his disciples, I'm going to go before you into Galilee. He wasn't there and in Galilee at the same time. He had to go from one place to the other because he was local. His body was still a local entity, just like yours is. And furthermore, Jesus physically ascended into heaven after 40 days subsequent to his resurrection, and he ascended into heaven in his body. So where is the body of Christ now? Well, it's not in the tomb. It's not on earth. Where is it? It's in heaven. Jesus' physical body is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, still with the same properties and still with the same dimensions. And in that same body, Christ will return at his second coming. His glorified body has always had a specific location and it's always had specific dimensions. And so to say that this body and this blood is literally present in the communion service is to assert the omnipresence of Christ's glorified body. His complete body and blood must be in many locations throughout the world at the same time if their doctrine is true, because 
For example, in Oregon right now, I would guess that there's probably oh, 50 or 60 Roman Catholic churches, at least in the state, and they're all offering communion at the same time. So that means Christ's physical body has to be in 50 or 60 places at once and just multiply that across the world. And so if their doctrine is true, his complete body and blood must be in many locations at the same time where that body and blood has to be divided up and scattered throughout the world in many little particles of wafers and cups which the Roman priests hold and consecrate. So this concept of the omnipresence of Christ's glorified body, which would have to be true if the Catholic doctrine were true, is nowhere taught in the scripture and it's everywhere contradicted in the scripture. Christ's glorified body is the same as our glorified body is going to be. And if his glorified body is omnipresent, then our glorified bodies when we get to heaven are going to be omnipresent too because he's got the same body we do. And omnipresence is an attribute of God, not of humanity. And Jesus' body is a human body. So by definition, matter cannot ever be omnipresent. And while the spiritual body has capabilities, our natural body does not, our glorified spiritual bodies are still matter. You remember Luke 24, 36 to 43, when doubting Thomas doubted whether Jesus was raised from the grave. And he says, unless I can put my finger in his in the nail holes in his hands and I can put my hand in the spear hole in his side I will not believe and remember Jesus showed up a week later and he said to Thomas Thomas come here handle me touch me put your finger in the nail in my hands and put your hand in the hole in my side and see for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see me have so he's got flesh, he's got bones. And then he says, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of fish and a piece of honeycomb and he ate it in front of them. And what, why did he go through all that? He's trying to convince him, I'm not a ghost. I'm like a real solid person. You can't just put your hand through me. You come up and touch me and I'm, I have matter. I, I have flesh and bones. So while Christ may be and is omnipresent as to his spirit, his body has a single location, a limited dimension, is made up of matter, and therefore cannot be omnipresent or multipresent. So just reason tells you that um, there's no way that, that this doctrine is true. The tenth and final reason that I want to bring out and that is this teaching, uh, and we've already covered this, so I'll cover it briefly, is contrary to the once for all sacrifice of Christ. Now, why do the Catholics need a body and some blood in their mass? Why do they need that? Well, because they have an altar and they have a priest. And the priest is performing a sacrifice on the altar. That's what he's doing. 
And so in their theology, what they're doing is re-sacrificing Jesus Christ every time they celebrate their, their, their Mass, their, their Lord's Supper. The Catholics believe the Mass is a sacrifice in which the priest offers to God the body and blood of Christ under the form of bread and wine. And so the words of Christ, this do in remembrance of me, are made to mean offer the sacrifice over and over again, which I myself have just offered in your presence, which is a gross contradiction of what he actually said. And so for them, the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice. But in the Bible, the Lord's Supper is never called a sacrifice, nor is there any indication that it is to be considered as such. It is to be a declarative memorial ceremony, but not a sacrificial one. Turn your Bible to Hebrew chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. In the middle of the New Testament. And we'll just look briefly at a passage that um, sets forth this once for all sacrifice of Christ. <clears throat> now, We'll start out at verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 10. It says, For the law, speaking of the old covenant, where they did all the animal sacrifices before Jesus came, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect, for then would they not have ceased to be offered. Because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins, but in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Why? Because it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Now, if you go walking outside on a sunny day, there's a shadow cast on the ground. And what casts that shadow? The substance of your body. Right, So there's the real thing, which is the body, and then there's the shadow, which is a pretty poor image of the real thing. And the animal sacrifices are this shadow of the true sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Okay, He, as it were, the body, and the animal sacrifices are, as it were, the shadow. Okay, now, ever tried to hug a shadow? You get down on the ground, kind of wrap your arms around. It doesn't work too good, does it? But, but, but when, you, when, you, when you come to the substance and try to hug that, that works pretty good. Okay, ever try to get remission of sins from a shadow? It doesn't work too good. But if you go to the real sacrifice, you can get remission of sins. And so... Um, you can have 10,000 shadows and they don't do you a lot of good, but you have one person to hug, that does you a lot of good, okay? And you can have 50,000 animal sacrifices and they don't do you any good. But if you have one real sacrifice, then it meets all of your needs. And that's the difference between the old covenant and the new. It's under the old covenant, you had all these animal sacrifices and they pointed to the real thing. I mean, if, if you're standing around the corner, if, if you're there, and I'm here, and the sun's back here, 
and I'm standing right here, and you look over and you see my shadow, you think, ah, there's somebody standing around the corner. And so when the Jews looked at the animal sacrifices, they said, there's somebody coming that's going to give us a perfect sacrifice. We can see the shadow of it in these animals, but we're waiting for that person to step out into world history and reveal himself. Oh, there you are. I saw your shadow. Now I see you. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus appeared on the scene of world history. And, and, and as soon as the real person steps out, do you look at his shadow anymore? You look at him, right? You forget about the shadow. You could care less about it. And in the same way, as soon as Jesus stepped onto the stage of world history, the animal sacrifice was like, don't need those anymore. And that's what it's saying here in verses 1 through 4. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices they offer year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Verse 4, it's not possible. The blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So, verse 5, wherefore when he, Jesus, comes into the world, he said to God, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. God had no pleasure in those animal sacrifices. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written to me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin thou wouldst not, neither had pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He takes away the first, all the animal sacrifices, that he may establish the second, the sacrifice of Jesus. By the which will, that is by God's will, we are sanctified or set apart from sin through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How many animal sacrifices did they have? Millions through the centuries. How many times did Jesus die on the cross? Once. Why? Because it was perfect. You only need to do something once if you do it right. Now notice verse 11. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering has he perfected forever them that are sanctified. So you have the many offerings that were ineffectual, the one offering that was perfect. Now let me ask you a question. If the one offering was perfect, then why would the priest need to take that person and offer him again and again and again and again every time he celebrated the Mass? Because you see, they're not just saying this is a symbolic reenactment of the once for all sacrifice of Christ. They're not saying that. They're saying we are actually re-sacrificing the literal body and blood of Christ again every Sunday on our altar by our priest. And of course, it's contrary to um, all of the teachings of Scripture. The whole idea that the sacrifice of Christ needs to be constantly repeated 
is derogatory to the value, the worth, and the permanence of his work on the cross and reduces it back to the level of those animal sacrifices that needed to be continually repeated. If Jesus perfected forever those who believe by one sacrifice, as verse 11 says, then what need have we of further sacrifices? And the answer is we don't. So we don't need the Roman Catholic Mass because we don't need the Roman Catholic sacrifice. Now, I just want to say by way of conclusion that if the doctrine of Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation is false, and we've proven that it has, and the host is not the body of Christ, and his soul and divinity is not present in the wine, then the elevation and worship of the host and the wine, so that people can venerate it and worship it, is an act of idolatry. What are the Catholics worshiping when the priest holds up the host? A piece of bread. Now, the reason why they worship the piece of bread is they believe it's Jesus. But we've clearly shown that it can't be. And so therefore, what they're really doing is engaging in an act of idolatry. If the doctrine of transubstantiation be false, then the bread and wine are not the body and blood of Christ, and the priest has nothing to offer and can make no sacrifice. And what he's really doing is engaging an act of blasphemy, not an act of worship. I have a little poem I want to read you. This is a very humorous poem, uh, but it demonstrates the stupidity of this doctrine. This doctrine deserves... It's like somebody asked Alan Keyes once, um, what do you think of homosexual marriage? He says, the only proper response to homosexual marriage is laughter. And what he's saying is, it's so stupid, it's laughable. You know, to talk about homosexual marriage is like talking about a hot snowball. It's an oxymoron. Okay. Well, there's a time for saying, you know, this deserves to be laughed at. And so that's what this poem is about. A pretty maid, a Protestant was to a Catholic wed to love all Bible truths and tales. Quite early, she'd been bred. It sorely grieved her husband's heart that she would not comply and join the Mother Church of Rome and heretics deny. So day by day he flattered her, but still she saw no good would ever come from bowing down to idols made of wood. The Mass, the Host, the Miracles were made but to deceive and transubstantiation to she'd never dare believe. He went to see his clergyman and told him his sad tale. My wife is an unbeliever, sir. You can perhaps prevail. For all your Romish miracles, my wife has strong aversion. To really work a miracle may lead to her conversion. The priest went with the gentleman, he thought, to gain a prize. He said, I will convert her, sir, and open both her eyes. So when they came into the house, the husband loudly cried, The priest has come to dine with us. He's welcome, she replied. And when at last the meal was o'er, the priest at once began to teach his hostess about the sinful state of man 
the greatness of our Savior's love, which Christians can't deny, to give himself a sacrifice and for our sins to die. I will return tomorrow, lass. Prepare some bread and wine. The sacramental miracle will stop your soul's decline. I'll bake the bread, the lady said. You may, he did reply. And when you've seen this miracle, convinced you'll be, say I. The priest did come accordingly. The bread and wine did bless. The lady asked, Sir, is it changed? The priest answered, Yes. It's changed from common bread and wine to truly flesh and blood. Begor, alas, this power of mine has changed it into God. So having blessed the bread and wine, to eat they did prepare. The lady said unto the priest, I warn you to take care. For half an ounce of arsenic was mixed right in the batter. But since you have its nature changed, it cannot really matter. The priest was struck real dumb. He looked as pale as death. The bread and wine fell from his hands, and he did gasp for breath. Bring me my horse, the priest cried. This is a cursed home, the lady replied. Be gone. Tis you who share the curse of Rome. The husband, too, he sat surprised, and not a word did say. At length he spoke, my dear, said he, the priest has run away. To gulp such mummery and tripe, I'm not for sure quite able. I'll go with you and we'll renounce this Roman Catholic fable. That was pretty cute. And, you know, the point is well made. If there's arsenic in the bread and the bread is really changed into the body of Christ, then the arsenic doesn't exist anymore. So it should be safe to eat, right? Okay, any questions? Eric? Yes, and I think that's a point well made. They weren't being excessive when they said that. It's a gross idolatry to worship bread and wine as you would worship Christ. And... Um, so, yeah, you know, we're not dealing with some folks that are almost just exactly like us. We're dealing with people who have a totally different gospel and who uh, really have a, have a, a religion of uh, darkness and damnation. You know, not, not every religious person is right. And how do you know who's right and who's wrong? Well, compare it with what the Bible says. This is the standard. I'm not the standard. You're not the standard. And the Pope isn't the standard. The Bible is the standard. This is the word of God. The Pope is, the word of the Pope is the word of a man. Just like my words are the words of a man. I'm no better than the Pope and the Pope's no better than we. We both of us have to look at the Bible and see what it teaches. And we have to uh, compare what we say and submit what we say to what this book says. Because this is the source of authority. And... Um, they have failed to uh, accurately reflect what the book teaches and therefore what God teaches. All right, any other comments? All right, well, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the Lord's Supper. Lord, it's distasteful to have to rebut error. We prefer to just state the truth. But Lord, we see that our Lord Jesus denounced the error 
in the heresy of the Pharisees during his ministry. And there's a time to point out those teachings which would lead people astray. And Lord, we pray that you might help us to avoid them and to understand the destructive nature of them. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the truth and embrace and follow and teach the truth. Guide us, Father, into a better and fuller understanding of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.